Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Mental Health and Addiction Podcast. My name is Andy Bernstein, and I'm having mic problems, but bear with me. Um, today on the map, we are going to break down the healthcare quality improvement in marginalized communities that are seeking treatment for mental health addiction or for addiction and mental health. And but before we get started, we got to do a roll call. And let's talk to our co-hosts. Let's meet Chris and Willie. Chris, who are you? Uh, I'm a person. Yep, yep, I'm a person. Uh, Chris Perry Long, I uh, work for Aware Recovery Care. I'm a family educator. Uh, addiction chose my family. I didn't choose to get into this field. Um, and in this podcast, we talk about things that people don't want to talk about. Off to you, Willie. Really drink water. Uh, I'm an educator for UMass Boston and the Addiction Counseling Education Program, uh, where I specialize in addiction with co-occurring disorders, and I have a private practice that I run also. And previous life uh, was with WBCN, The Rock in Boston, back in the wild 80s. So. For the big mattress crew. The big mattress, Charles Lacquadera and Billy West. There you go. And I'm Andy Bernstein. I am your moderator. I am a, um, a media I have been working in radio and TV for a long time and I uh, as well as cause marketing and working with different nonprofit organizations and causes and the addiction crisis and mental health has been something that has uh, really touched me and I created in with Chris and um, and it's another colleague we created uh, the show map the map to try to help people bring awareness and to help end stigma and hopefully um, get people to seek help both personally and and with a family member. So um, let's get started. I'm going to ask you guys a question. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, right? Uh-oh is right. <laughs> but but before... Here we no, go. No, no, this is important. No, okay. this, is, this is good. All right. So I'm going to tee this up, and I want to get your take on it. Um, do you believe that COVID-19 and the rise in addiction are connected? And if so, why? Connected? Mm-hmm. Is there, is there a correlation in... Well, I know we've seen a 10,000 person in, increase in overdose deaths during the COVID year. So, yeah, I would say that there can be a correlation. I think the only correlation is, is that, yeah, the deaths are, you know, it's like running a marathon. They're running, who's going to have more deaths in a, in a year? Yeah. Uh, suicides you know, are up. Suicides are up. Um, you overdose know, deaths are up. Yeah. I mean, accidental okay. overdoses that aren't being recorded, you know, uh, people not going to treatment. Alcoholism is going up. Like, let's, let's get real here. Like we're kind of becoming the forgotten, uh, forgotten you know problem we were getting yeah, yeah. we were we're getting we were getting all kinds of great resources and, and coverage and understanding and education out there and then covid hit and bam so you know yeah 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 and when when covid hit too i think that we started to see uh a re-stigmatization of uh, addiction and mental health too as far as emergency rooms went you know especially in the beginning of it well, I mean, I think what's really scary, like right now, so down in Florida, there's over a million cases just in Florida with all these old people. And we were having a conversation with a healthcare provider yesterday, my parents and, and I. And older people, by the way, older. older, older. <laughs> old. 
Dusty mm -hmm. and Krusty. Anyway. Um, <laughs> hey, uh, wait a minute. I'm part of that group now. Come on. <laughs> but what they were, what we were saying is that there's no, there are no ICU beds mm -hmm. and down here in the hospitals in Florida. And it's happening at home too, back in, in Massachusetts. It's happening across the country. They're putting people, they're having, I would not want to have to be a doctor or a healthcare uh, person right now because they're having to having to decide who can live, who can yeah. make it, and who can't. Like, right. can you imagine, like, this is going to have so many more repercussions that we're not even going to see right now. It's right. going to be like when people come back from the war and the PTSD sets in and we think suicide rates have gone up now. Wait until like COVID is no longer, you know, number one, two, and three in the news. That's when, you know, the survival, survival, and all these stories are going to come out about how these families are affected. And those doctors and those nurses are going to be seeing those stories and they're going to be able to relate and they're not going to be able to cope because burnout is, is ridiculous. So it's oh, yeah. very scary. Well, the numbers are so high on, um, with COVID deaths and people getting COVID that, you know, they don't pale pale in comparison to the, uh, you know, overdoses don't pale into the comparison of COVID numbers. And I yeah, think, yeah, with with California now is what it's one in five people have it. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. And actually, speaking of California, I was reading an article um, on in the uh, L.A. Times, which was published on January fifteenth, and they said that there was a study last month um, in JAMA, J-A-M-A, Psychiatry. Journal of America. Yeah, okay. Journal of America. Yeah. Okay. And and they found that overdose deaths seen by EMS during the height of the corona, coronavirus restrictions were more than double the rate of the year before. Yeah. Um, and the numbers they just released by the CDC paint a similarly, similarly, Larry, a chilling portrait. Overall, 2020 is on track to see about 40% more overdose deaths than in other recent years. And they're saying that the U.S. continues to address addiction as primarily a criminal justice issue, trying to stem the overdose crisis by punishing those who use and sell drugs. But with COVID running rampant in American jails and prisons, being incarcerated, being incarcerated for possession can become a death sentence. And even without the pandemic, incarceration for drug offenses often does more harm than good. And they're saying that the risk of overdose increases dramatically post-release from jail and prison. And so we're actually killing people by locking them up, which actually goes to the discussion we had last week with Amy. Right. Yeah, I mean, and so, you know, I think what we have to what we have to look at, you know, so we have so much turmoil in um, the world right now, you know, with the transition of presidents and all the stuff that has gone on with that. We're not getting political here. You know, everything else is a highlight and we have really worked hard to break down that stigma um, of addiction. And I really feel like this is kind of bringing back the stigma you know, like it's going to be, How so? well, because, because, you know, people are like, so the stimulus, right? This extra $600 mm -hmm. I've been working with detoxes and these detoxes are like kids are AMAing left and right again. We're getting another 1400. 
if the bill passes on top of the 600. Yeah. I, I mean, it's great for the people that need it, but I really think like our government really needs to revisit, you know, who gets this? Like people that have child support don't get it. Like the guys that own or the families that own child support, they're off the list. I think that if somebody is, you know, I don't want to red flag them. I don't want to label them, but if they're like an active addiction, there's gotta be some type of barrier that their loved ones can, Hey, not right now, put it in the bank, save it for when they're well. Gift cards, you know? gift cards. Yeah, but gift cards, they can still use. Kidding. I'm kidding. I know. I know. 1400 bucks in gift, gift cards too. That's good. That's a, that's, you know, about six nails in a coffin, you know, I know. What are they going to, how do they do that? How do they determine that? How that, you know, at the risk of getting so invasive into people's lives, how do you, how do you do that? You can't, you know, but it's just, I mean, it's just one of those things that's like, it's really scary. It's really scary. Like that 600 bucks, people are AMAing out of programs left and right because to them, 600 bucks is, you know, a couple of nights of, uh, well, the dealers are salivating about it. Yeah. You know, really. I mean, it's a shame that you couldn't, you know, it would take, it would, it would, it would be probably too much uh, organization wise to try to have it. So, you know, the money goes directly, you know, for your rent or directly to food. I mean, it's tough yeah. call. It, it's great. We got a lot going on here right now yeah, in the world. I mean, it is just going to bring a lot more enlightenment to. Yeah. So uh, good segue. Good segue, Chris. Hey. Um, hey. Um, okay. Let's let's meet today's guest, who is a uh, colleague of Chris. He is on the front lines, like Chris, of addiction and fighting addiction and for healthcare quality for those struggling with addiction. I'm going to let Chris do the honors. Who is our special guest today? Uh, so Dennis is uh, a coworker. Uh, Dennis Leary. Can we Dennis mention his name? His last name? Dennis Leary. Sorry, Dennis, Dennis Leary. L. Dennis, Dennis L. L. Okay. Um, and he works in the Connecticut office. And um, Dennis is really working hard to advocate to bring um, treatment uh specifically for the LGBTQT communities. Um, and he has a lot to say, and it's very interesting. I just heard him speak on a, uh, another forum recently and the statistics that he threw out just made my head spin. Like it's, mm. you know, I personally, and I've said this a million times, I don't understand how we as humans treat other humans. Um, it just doesn't. Or don't so treat. Or, or don't treat exactly. So, without further ado, good morning, Dennis. Oh, you're muted, buddy. You gotta put your mic on. There good you morning. go. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me. I I just want to say that uh, I'm honored and privileged to be here. Uh, hearing everything that everyone was just talking about was like hearing my own voice speak here in America. Um, we look at addiction through, by and large, the moral model, which looks at addiction as a moral weakness and as a choice, and punishment is the preferred form of treatment, right? Lock, look, lock them up and throw away the key, and, you know, you are a weak individual and addiction is a choice, when in fact it's been proven that it is a, a disease of the brain and it affects the reward system and circuitry of the brain and that you know uh, treatment works, recovery is possible. 
people can go on to live fruitful and productive lives. Uh, I will say I am a living example of what recovery does. Uh, I have no problem with self-disclosure. Um, I am somebody that had a formal sixth grade education, uh, 48 felony convictions. Uh, 10 years ago, I spent 19 years of my life in the penitentiary um, on the installment plan. Uh, never home for more than three months at a time, always going back away because I was poor and from the inner city and I didn't have money for a lawyer. Uh, all of my crimes were possession of narcotics and then getting rearrested for violation of probation because they, the court system and the criminal justice system would always uh, choose to give me probation or parole. And then I would come out and then continue to use substance abuse and uh, continue to use substances and then reoffend for using drugs. And then they would put me back into the system, come out and give me more probation, never offered treatment, never offered any uh, you know, help and because I was poor and those types of options costed money. So, uh, I was bullied for being gay because I was different. I was a little bit more feminine. And so until one time, I was 37 years old by this point, And um, I, di I didn't even know that I didn't know there was another way to live. And so I got arrested for the umpteenth time. And I woke up in the middle of a bullpen after a weekend of an alcohol and drug infused you know, fuel weekend. <laughs> and right. I just thought like, what am I doing here? How could I have been here yet again? And I finally got a public defender that actually cared and advocated for me. And he got me a program called drug court. And um, like, he actually advocated to me not to take it. And he said, you know, I can get you two years flat out in jail or I can get you drug court. However, it's a very stringent program where you have to go to treatment and uh, you give a series of, of uh, urines. And if you get one positive urine, they'll lock you up for two weeks. If you get two positive urines, they lock you up for four weeks. And on the fourth positive urine, they will give you a seven year sentence. Based off of your track record, I would suggest you take the two years because I don't know that you'll make it. And I was just so tired. I said, you know, give me that program. And the rest is history. Here I am. I got treatment. Um, I got educated. I went back to school. I learned how to talk proper English. I learned how to write an email because I didn't even know how to use it. You got to figure from I went I, I, the biggest stretch of my time was between 1999 and 2007 when I went. Oh. When I went in, um, I, they still had those big Motorola phones. And when I came out, they were on the iPhone 3. So like that, that break in time technology had increased, you know, a hundredfold. And so, um, so I, I, I learned. And now, you know, while I'm certainly no tech genius, like I know my way around a computer. I know there's another way to live. Today, I pay my taxes. That's huge. I own a home. I actually have five children. I, uh, you know, I'm a good father. I'm a productive member of society. I'm married. I'm a good role model. I'm a professional working to help others um, recover from addiction. I, 
I believe in this life because I know it works. I'm passionate about healthcare equity because I believe in quality access to care for those suffering from addiction and mental health. Um, you know, it's, I've experienced what it's like to walk into a hospital and be treated poorly because I had state insurance or no insurance, right? As a, as a gay male, I know what it's like to walk into a hospital and have that health screening and have a, a healthcare professional ask me if I was a male that had sex with males. And when I answered yes, have them put on two sets of gloves when they didn't do it to anybody else that was in that hospital getting triage. And these are the microaggressions that the LGBTQ community faces on a on a daily basis. I've uh, walked into a primary healthcare um, organization. I apologize, I have dogs. The, they always choose to- mine's, mine's barking right now too. So can't do anything without my dog barking. It's- uh, That's yeah. my, it's my beautiful Rottweiler, Farrah Fawcett. I'm dating myself <laughs> by her name. So um, I, yeah, so- um, that's that's what happens to both people that sub, that deal with um, substance abuse and mental health on a daily basis. We're marginalized. We're we're taught by the actions of others that we deserve to live on the fringes of society. We're taught that we're supposed to be treated that way. We are um, subjected to such harsh treatment that places that are traditionally not even thought of by mainstream society is safe are not safe for us. So we're schools. People generally just think of school as a safe place, but for people from these marginalized communities, we're bullied. We're taught that we don't belong. Churches, people go to church thinking that it's a loving, safe community, but we're from the pulpit, we're taught that we're an abomination. We don't belong there. We go to the hospitals and you know we're treated like this. 50% of transgendered individuals, or transgender, I'm sorry, transgender um, individuals report that they won't go for primary health care or they'll put off going to a doctor's because they've been mistreated, which means that wow. they would rather stay in pain than get the health care that they need because of mistreatment. Most LGBTQ um, individuals won't report sexual or physical assaults to the police because of indifference or uh, to, to helping them or won't go to the hospital be, uh, after being sexually assaulted because of uh, lack of lack of follow through on the health care providers. Um, now, that's, that's a travesty. That's amazing. Can I can I back up for a second? Because um, this is unbelievable. I'm blown away based on what you were saying from your story and to where you are, where you are today. And it must've been a, uh, a very, obviously a very long journey for you. Where I'm like, you're living proof that recovery works and doing the work. You really are. I mean, it's unbelievable. I'm hearing you speak. I, I would never guess in a million years, your story. Um, where did you, where did you grow up and what was it? Um, you know, how, how did, how did this all start for you on, um, you know, getting trapped in, in, in this world of addiction? How did it transpire? I grew up in a town called Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, oh, it's I know a, Bridgeport well. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, uh, it's a very urban town. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, you know, I come from a family of very limited means, um, you know, grew up on welfare. Um, we grew up right next to uh, this very infamous housing project called Father Panic Village and um, urban blight. Um, I, and so in my neighborhood, there were three types of individuals. Uh, two made it out or were able to make um, ends meet. Those were drug dealers and those were uh, sport people that were really good at sports and able to, you know, get some form of scholarship or some, you know, get drafted into uh, professional sports. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not good at sports. That wasn't my thing. I, and I was bullied at school. So I quit school in sixth grade. And then you could do two things. You could uh, succeed and make it out or you could succumb. Uh, to and become a product of your environment and that was what happened to me at uh, 12 years old i was at seven years old i was exposed to marijuana um and i began smoking marijuana at seven years old at 12 years old i was exposed to cocaine and began um sniffing cocaine because what i experienced was um i was bullied mercilessly because i was different and what I experienced was if I was around people that use narcotics, nobody cared that I was different if we were using because I could help fuel their drug, drug use. Did you, Dennis, did you know at seven that you were gay? I knew something was wrong. I'm not wrong. I knew that something was different. And you can see right now the first thought process was that I was something was wrong because it's not wrong, but that was built into my, 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 my psychological being. So my first experience of knowing that I was different was telling my older sister that I thought Fonzie from Happy Days was cute. And she smacked me in my face and said, only faggots say that. And so who doesn't okay. think Fonzie was cute? I, don't think, <laughs> I think that's universal. I mean, yeah, yeah. So that was my first experience. And I didn't even know what quote unquote a faggot was, but I knew if it got me smacked that I didn't want to be it, that I didn't want to be that. And um, so I knew that I thought boys were cute, but I didn't know what that meant. And I was always um, like, I didn't know what attraction meant that at that age, but I do know that like traditionally when boys pick on girls in the playground, like I picked on other little boys, I would push them and things of that nature. So on some level, I always knew. However, um, you know, especially in an urban setting, I mean, that's the only point of reference that I have. Uh, that type of thing wasn't um, really looked favorably favorably upon. And that definition of masculinity in those types of settings is criminal behavior. So I began stealing bikes at a very young age. Uh, I began stealing cars. To prove uh, yourself. Yeah, exactly, exactly. To show that I wasn't gay, you know, mm -hmm. to show that I could hang with a tough crowd. You know, I dabbled in selling drugs, but just used my product more than I sold. I was. I was a poor drug dealer because I was my own best customer. Um, you know, I've been through the gamut. I've been shot. I've been stabbed. 
Um, I've been, you know, pistol whipped. I've been through the whole, the whole gamut with all that stuff. I've been very close to death um, many times, which goes to show me that um, there is some form of divine power out there because it is only by the grace of that that I am still here. I mean, I've been in situations where guns have been put in my mouth and cocked back and like, I'm still here. And I'm also like not some form of psychopath or don't have some form of major personality disorder or anything like that. So I'm able, like I have cognitive functioning abilities and I'm actually you know, a certified uh, addictions counselor in route to like get a master's degree in, in clinical therapy. So I'm going to be able to like treat those disorders. And I always thought, and I was taught and told that I was going to be nothing and that I was stupid. And like, I know differently today. I know that I'm actually quite smart and I was never given access to resources to know that I was. And so my passion is to work with and to help others realize their full potential. But to get back to what your question was, so I was exposed to crack cocaine at 15 and that was really my downfall. I fell in love with crack cocaine from the first time I used it. And that began a lifetime of destruction. Um, like I was of the age, like I was around when the crack ep epidemic hit in the eighties. And um, I began a lifetime of crack use from 15 to 37. And because of the crack use, like I never really held down a job. Um, I began shoplifting to support the crack habit from that age all the way through 37 and was in and out of prison with two year, three year, four year, um, 90 day, six month sentences all the way. I was never, so from the age of when I started to be able to go to jail right at 16, I was never home for more than six months from the age of um, 16 to 37. Was was there, a, uh, and I'll let you guys chime in too, Chris and Willie, because was there a, what, when did the light bulb go off for you? You know, when did it decide, when did you decide, you know what, I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. Was it you address co-occurring? Was there co-occurring disorders, which those guys know more about than I do? But just like to use big words. That's right. Pretend like I know what I'm talking about, and uh, I know enough to be dangerous. So, um, but was there a co-occurring disorder? Did you did you treat things like you know? Because it it sounds incredible, but I'm trying to figure out where the the how did you pull yourself out? How did this? How did it change for you? What what was the was there a defining turning point? What's up? Yeah, yeah. Turning point. Yeah, yeah. Right. So um, there's definitely some. A person doesn't spend, you know, twenty plus years utilizing poison to their system, as a, unless there's some form of something going on, right? So there was there's you know definitely so. I grew up with a very traumatic childhood, right? There was a lot of things going on, both with family, um, both with you know some external things um, happening. Um, all you know, as I said, I've been shot, I've been stabbed. Those are traumatic events. Um, 
fortunately, um, as a coping mechanism, I was able to really compartmentalize those things because I was also like homeless as a youth. Um, my family wasn't able to deal with the fact that I was gay um, when I came out. And as a result, I was homeless for many years, um, which an interesting statistic out of all homeless youth, 40% are um, gay and lesbian because their families threw them out. And um, that's a pretty big statistic. And so, which ironically of the, that 40%, not to go off on a tangent, mm -hmm. of that 40%, one in three will be approached by a trafficker um, for, um, for human trafficking purposes within 48 hours of leaving home. And- um, How does that happen, Dennis? Uh, many ways. Uh, human traffickers will um, stake out at known places for runaway places like the Chelsea Piers, um, which is a, a well-known place in New York City for LGBTQ homeless youth to uh, run away to. They stay, they uh, stake out um, bus depots, um, places where like they're, that might offer shelter. They also utilize social media uh, as, a, as a method to lure people in. Um, some other things, some other interesting facts are um, a great deal of um, not just LGBTQ youth, but youth in general, um, a majority of sex trafficked, uh, I mean, um, human trafficked youth um, are former foster care youth because these children are often behaviorally challenged youth that are very fragile and very um, marginalized. So they've been abused at home or they have former sexual abuse um, sexual abuse path. They are either mentally challenged or behaviorally challenged and they've been, they, they're, they're not wanted or they feel like they're not wanted and they run away. And these traffickers prey on that and they offer a sense of like, you know, we, I'm going to care about you. Um, they really, a, a predator can sense weakness. A predator can sense when somebody, um, you know, has these types of issues and they, they offer a sense of caring. Now, when you think when somebody runs away from home, um, things have to be bad because a kid will run back home from foster care from a four poster bed in a suburban community in a really nice home to mom's house in the urbanized setting to a mattress on the floor because they love their family. So for a child to run away from that, it's got to be bad, right? Things have to be really bad. And so the familiar, the family bond, the bond that a child has with their mother and father and siblings um, is missing. And everybody wants that. So that person plays on that and says that, you know, tells them they're going to give that to them. They might buy them some outfits and some sneakers. Nobody's ever done that before. Mm -hmm. They might give them a hug. They might give them a kiss. Take them out, buy them something to eat. And this kid might never have. He's vulnerable. You're you're vulnerable at the time. Yeah. So and not, then, not to like die redirect, but are you a lawyer? <laughs> no, but <laughs> my brain always is like spinning, right? Yes. So with the overdoses, fatal overdoses that we have. They've been up 17% this year since COVID, by the way. 17%. Over last year. 
Um, well, here's my thing, right? So I am a parent that raised my grandchildren, right? And we have all these kids that have been left behind. Are we going to see an increase in, in young adult trafficking? So from what I know about tra trafficking, and I just want to say that I am um, by no means an expert, right? I'm, I'm versed, but not an expert. And I can, what I know is um, pretty much limited to um, general statistics, specifically specific to LGBTQ um, youth, right? What I can say is this, um, uh, and I have some basic statistics here. So let's talk to the audience a little bit about what human trafficking is. I'm an educator by nature. So like, I wanna make sure people know what um, um, human trafficking can be uh, looked at as, right? So it's forced labor, uh, it can be marriage, it can be sex work and even organ removal, right? Um, human trafficking uh, is a person's, um, it's, it's referred to as uh, modern slavery, um, human trafficking of persons and those are, and human trafficking in general. Those are the terms that uh, the US Department of State all accept. Um, internationally, it's estimated 20 to 40 million people are victims of human trafficking a year. Um, wow. the actual We're in the U.S. or yeah, worldwide? Yeah, worldwide, internationally. Okay. And so it's hard to get a 50,000 in the U.S. is the, is the estimated number. Um, it's hard to really gauge um, what what the actual number is because um, so many cases go unreported. Right. Uh, the United Nations refers to that as um, the hidden number of crime. And so um, it's big business. Right. There's one hundred and fifty billion dollars made from human trafficking a year. I mean, let's no. Wow. Yeah. Let's let's just take a moment and um, think of that number. One hundred and fifty billion dollars. Now, Ooh, wait, wait. So I'm assuming that this, so this is taking place. Don't think I'm letting you off the hook about your defining moment either. No, but no, okay. Um, but, but so this is a, this is across the country, right? So these are in cities everywhere around the country, or is it centralized to one particular um, location that is, Right. So there's there it's it's nationwide, but there are hot spots. The three biggest hot spots for human trafficking in the United States are California, New York, Texas, and Florida. Of course, Florida's gotta be in the mix. Yeah, yeah. And um the two biggest countries that those people those um individuals come from are Mex Mexico and Thailand. Hmm. And again, it's it's poor people that this happens to. This doesn't happen to affluent individuals. Um, I'm not going to say ever or never. Um, you know, I'm sure there's rare cases of kidnapping, but this happens to poor people. This happens to marginalized communities. This happens to runaways. This happens to uh, people that are that might be looking for a better life and are told like if you come over here i mean let's remember human trafficking also consists of forced labor forced begging um forced marriage 
Uh, you know, if you come to the United States, you have to give up a kidney. Um, and these are people that it makes me so sad and I'm so passionate about this. So excuse me, somebody looking for a better life. You know, the mother that wants to send money back home to Mexico for her kids. You know, the young girl who thinks that, uh, you know, this is America is the land of opportunity. So she wants to come here uh, to make a better life for herself because that's what she's heard, you know, and, and this is what happens. Uh, just to get back to put it, a little bit in perspective. So $150 billion is made from this a year. 99 billion of that, that 150 billion is from the sex trade. 71% um, of the, the population is uh, women, women and girls. Who would probably come from, boys. from situations where, you know, maybe, maybe the, you know, the, 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 there wasn't a father around or the, or the, you know, they, they didn't have, um, positive body images or, you know, um, you know, uh, abuse. So then, right. Is that kind of the. So Dennis, do you have any type of statistics of like how many people? So we always hear like in our, we we work, right. And I'm really, you too, I'm sure not to single you out, Andy, but hear about people that like, you know, traded sex for drugs, right? For whatever. And then somehow like, you know, the, the pimp, right? The pimp pimps them out, but they also like, and, and gives them just enough to, to get by. And they're not, this isn't like the movies, right? Where, you know, they're living yeah. high and mighty and they're, they're being well taken care of and they're getting massages and body waxes and it's not like that so i don't have firm numbers on that what i do know for what i do know is that a, a lot of times um in particular in mexico um a lot of times what ends up happening is the individuals that are coming across um like the, the, the individuals that are being trafficked across into in, from Mexico into the United States, that heroin is a big problem where they get the individual, they, they like dreamland, right. yeah, they get the individual um, addicted to heroin and then they're put into like really awful for lack of a better term, like, like shanties. Um, these, these, houses that have like just curtains drawn across the um the rooms and just over and over and over again these girls are just like drugged out and um and made the service yeah men come in and out and they're just um they're like they're like it's a brothel yeah 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 like, yeah, yeah. like oh, worse than a brothel because yeah, these girls are yeah. Yeah. over and over and over through the course of the day and like it's it's effectively just raped over and over and over because oh they're, like, they're not it out um all day long this happens uh, yeah so, yeah yeah uh, andy i mean uh, you know just to cite a cite a case you know as a therapist myself i mean i know on the north shore here there's actually a woman's safe house um, another another area that may be flying under the radar is a hotspot, but northern Maine, Aroostook County, Maine, there's a sex trafficking trade. It comes in from Quebec into northern Maine, and then it makes its way down to Boston. I actually worked worked with a woman where it was a case of where, you know, she was an active addict, and long story short, she was handcuffed to a bed and just made, you know, she was just servicing men all day long. 
and stuff. So I mean, oh, so- know, and that's fine under the it's it's northern Maine. It's from Quebec into northern into northern Maine, and it makes it's way way down to Boston. Blown away by this, right? It's so, so- sad. It's so sad oh. that we treat humans and we tolerate it. So. So I want to. Um, so I read a book called Dreamland by Sam Quinones, and he talked about black tar heroines coming up through Mexico, and yeah. they're setting up these stores, like tiendas, in different communities that are black tar heroin. Um, you know, for for you know, they wouldn't go to Boston, but they would go to Providence because Providence has uh, a smaller city, and they wouldn't have to battle with gangs. And things like that it, it gives them they have more of a an opportunity to do business with that and they'll go to like methadone clinics and try to recruit people yeah yeah no, just as a side note andy to too with black tar heroin there's more likelihood of abscesses and infections and everything else it it's crazy so so it, so basically if i understand this so sex trafficking is um being run by so you're saying people in mexico coming from mexico if I understand correctly, and they're bringing black tar heroin in. Is that accurate? I think Dennis is, oh, there you are. I, mean, I, I, I was just wanted to make sure you were asking me. So the answer to that question is yes to both, right? So uh, Mexico is the biggest importer of both of those, th- is one of the, is the biggest importer of one of the both of those things. The Philippines is also uh, the other known um, importer, one of the biggest importers of sex trafficking. Um, one of the other things that I just wanted to touch base on, and this goes to uh, one of the questions that you asked earlier, Chris, in terms of um, sex work. Um, the Polaris Project um, had did, had. Uh, performed a study and found that LGBTQ youth was 7.4 times more likely to experience sexual violence than their heterosexual counterparts and found that the uh, uh, trans trans individuals um, were 50 or 56% of transgender youth uh, was involved in the sex trade that they were sex workers. Nobody and and why do you think this is not being on the uh, the national agenda? It doesn't seem like people. Obviously, people aren't really Nobody talking about it. about it. Nobody talks about why? it. Because why? Why? Because uncomfortable. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. One, it's uncomfortable. Point, Chris. Yeah, it's uncomfortable, right? Two, um, it's a marginalized community. These kids, these kids are poor, right? Nobody. So I want you to think, it doesn't get talked about for the same reason OxyContin didn't get talked about till like a senator's kid overdosed from it, mm-hmm. right? And, and so it's the same reason that, you know, um, I don't want to stir any pots here, right? I don't want to- no, stir away. I love it. Okay. So when Amber Lynn, when Amber Lynn from Westport, Connecticut gets abducted, it's on the front page of every news- Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When Shaniqua Jones from Bridgeport gets abducted, it doesn't make a blip on the radar. Yeah, no one cares. People Nobody don't care cares because she's a little brown girl. Right. Mm-hmm. When uh, when a Caucasian girl from you know uh, an affluent neighborhood, you know when when gets raped, like oh my god, it's na- nationwide news. 
right? Right. But when that happens in an inner city, nobody cares. It doesn't, it doesn't, nothing happens. And like, like that's awful. That's so, that's so for you, right? Being a white guy coming from a urban setting, you're actually able to, you know, so it's, it's really probably a calling for you to really be able to speak to this because you have an advantage over Shaniqua Jones because you can actually bring this more to light than somebody. I, I, I think maybe um, growing up, I never experienced what is referred to as white privilege, right? Um, so I, I was a, I was what I was, you know, I was just as poor as the individuals from my surroundings. Um, so when a, to this day, to this day, the, probably the only experience of white privilege I've ever had, but then it turns bad, is um, generally like if I get pulled over at a traffic spot, at a traffic stop, um, when the police officer comes over, they're always very nice. You know, may, uh, you know, I pulled you over because you ran a red light. May I please have your license, registration, and insurance? And then I give them that. When they come back, they have their hand on their gun and they say, "Miss O'Leary, do you have?" You, because they've run my license, they see my history. Do you have any drugs, knives, or weapons in the car? Without a, with a, without a fail, you know what I mean. My yeah, answer to that know? is my answer to that is because I know like my rights now. And either you give me a ticket or you let me go because I have the money to pay the ticket now. You know what I mean? And no, I don't have anything in here. How does that happen? Like how many years? How many it's years? Been, it's been since 2012 was my last interaction with the law. And so, um, yeah. And so my answer to them now is like, you know, you can either give me a ticket or you can let me go, but I'm not gonna let you stand here and harass me. You're not gonna do that to me, not today. Not today, you're not gonna do that to me. And so like, I have, don't get me wrong. I have tremendous respect for our law enforcement field because like with anything, you're going to have good and you're going to have bad. Right. But regardless if uh, the law enforcement is, you know, a positive member or, or, you know, a not so positive member of the law enforcement field, I'm a responsible tax paying member of my community. And I am not going to, I don't have to answer that question. I don't have to answer that question. You pulled me over for running a red light. I've given you my license and registration. Uh, you know, give me my ticket warning or let me go. If, if that is your, those are your options. I'm not answering anything else. That's insane. Yeah, yeah. I have a, uh, and I don't even, a semi-automatic weapon underneath my seat. Would you like to see it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like if it? I had that, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> like, yeah. Yes, sir. Oh, I have an ounce of crack cocaine underneath my seat. Would you like me to turn that over to you? <laughs> this I just bought my trunk. I got like four kilos. Let's go. Like, uh, four keys. Okay. What happened? You guys so, are playing in my ADD left and right. I'm all, all over right, the place. So before we before we have to go, Dennis. Um, We're not leaving yet. No, I know. But before we do, because Dennis will have some more information and it won't like 10 minutes. Um, can you share about what you're doing and how you are um, helping question. the LGBTQ LGBTQT communities um, with, you know, mental health and substance use, how you're trying to, you know, help them? 
Right. So I'm doing a few different things, right? So part of my job at Aware Recovery here is one, just bringing awareness to the program. So I am going out into the community. I am meeting with organizations that do not know that we exist. And um, I am also um, meeting with um, charitable organizations that um, to try to create a fund for individuals that may not have access to care. I am going out, um, Pride isn't yet, but I'm trying to take a proactive event um, for um, Pride. So like AWARE can sponsor, like know your status. Um, I think it's so important for our LGBTQ youth and adult to know their HIV status. Um, there's some things in the works that I don't really want, I can't really speak to, but some research studies that are going to be going on, um, that announcements will be made about, they're still in the very early stages, so I can't really speak to that, but some really strong and positive partnerships that I would love to come back and talk about of course. when they, when, mm -hmm. when they um, become more, um, when, they, when, when they're more solidified. Um, so like one, one thing that I just went to do is talk to an LGBTQ specific um, uh, primary health care um, practice and I'm trying to partner with them to set up um, a mutual referral. That's what, so I go out into the community and talk about how, how like to become a resource for uh, individuals that are suffering from uh, substance abuse and comorbid mental health issues and how we can be a resource for them and create access to treatment for those individuals. So the great thing about this is Aware Recovery Care is a program that age, gender, and story matches every client to their care team. So in addition to giving care to these individuals, I'm, I'm also creating jobs for that same community because the more individuals that we're providing care for, the more jobs we're gonna have to create because we age gender story match. So now- What does I'm, that look like? So explain that a little bit more because I know what you're saying. So we are working on expanding our team. So we're having a specialized track created Correct. just for LG. So I, I, I want to I wanna preface this by saying, so we are a no wrong door agency. Anybody for hmm. anything can come and knock on our door and we will source appropriate treatment for that person, whether they come to our agency or not. And so um, we have different specialized tracks within our program for first responders, for adolescents, for LGBTQ um, plus individuals, right? So everybody that comes to our program will have team members that have walked the path of what that individual has gone through and have come out on the other side. So if a person has a first responder background, they're going to get a team member. They're going to get a team that has first responders on that team. If that person is an adolescent, we can't employ adolescents, but we can get people that had that are younger and have had a history as an adolescent come out the other side. So now my particular passion is the LGBTQ plus community. So if um, their team is going to consist of someone that's uh, identifies as being part of the LGBTQ plus community, so the more individuals, 
like any like any company as something scales and grows they have to hire so if the more individuals that are coming into our program from the lgbtq community we're going to need to hire more individuals from the lgbtq community to help those same individuals. So we'll be creating jobs as well as helping people. So it's kind of a synergistic um, type of, of thing because we're creating jobs to help people and we're helping people. This is phenomenal. Um, just to go back up, I, so I still wanna hear about kind of your defining moment. Cause I think it's important because you know, the story is of how you got to where you are today yeah, in the place you are and what kind of, like I said, um, what was the trigger that got you on yeah. the path, the, this path? Yes. So just to back up a little bit, I was a person also that like, I didn't even know how to talk proper English. Um, I, every other word was the F bomb or some form of expletive. I didn't broken English. And I, I, again, I woke up in a bullpen and I just remember being, what I remember was being surrounded by um, individuals that had also been arrested and it was loud. And I was in a a, a bullpen which was underneath the courthouse and I remember looking out at the bars at being in a cage and I felt like I was in a zoo it was loud people were yelling people were screaming and I just said I can't do this so I was in pain and um, pain can be a powerful motivator whether it be emotional or physical think about if you're sitting and the position you're in is really uncomfortable you're going to move to get yourself comfortable and so I was in such emotional pain I had caused myself wreckage um, I, I, I had been homeless at the time I had a big spider bite on my arm I was in physical pain I was in emotional pain I said to myself this is it this is the last time I remember praying to God for the upteenth time. And I said, God, if you can get me out of this mess, I will get sober and I will get my life right. And so I did a lot of legwork. I did that program. I went to the program. When I got done with the program, I had a choice. I could go back home to my mother's house, which was very dysfunctional, or I could have went to this uh, transitional living center, which kicked you out at seven o'clock and you had to be in the house, rain, sleet, snow, or shine. And it was the middle of winter. They put you out at seven o'clock. You had to be in at three o'clock. And that I was so miserable there that it made me save all my money to get to the next step to get to a sober house. And then it was just a lot of work from there, but I did the groundwork. And I'm so grateful for that because it taught me structure. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I read books insatiably to, to get better language. And then, you know, the gifts of sobriety just started. And, you know, I got a job as a telemarketer. Um, that was miserable. So it made me want to get a better job. And then slowly but surely, um, you know, then I started thinking like, what do I want to do with my life? And I started getting jobs that were better and better. And then, um, I, you know, I had always waited tables. Everybody was saying, don't go back to that because um, you know, it's, it puts your sobriety at a risk. And then, um, but like, Waiting tables give somebody the opportunity to make a really decent wage um, without, like, like I, I wasn't going to make a livable wage at Walmart. Like, I couldn't, I, I couldn't do that, right? And so I got a job at restaurants, then better restaurants, then better restaurants. And that gave me the ability to put myself through school without loans. 
up to the point of um, an associate's degree at least. And so, and then I decided that I, what did I want my legacy to be? Did I want to sell a $700 bottle of wine to a person with a really great state? Or did I want to save lives? And to me, saving lives was much more appealing than selling the bottle of wine. And so I got a job at it. I went through school and then I got a job at like a non-for-profit. And then I heard about AWARE, which is a really revolutionary model delivering care in home. Mm -hmm. And then I got a job um, at AWARE as direct care. And like, I think about my trajectory now and I am someone that was written off by society as a career criminal and I'm an executive today. What an amazing, amazing. Uh, does, um, did you come from a family? Was your, was it your mom and dad or was it just your mom? Um, my dad had schizophrenia. Okay. Um, and, and he was, he, my dad had a little bit of everything. He was like, um, a smorgasbord of mental illness and, right. um, a poo -poo know, platter. Yeah. Yes, he was. He, yeah. That's a great analogy. I love it. He was a platter of, of mental illness. Yeah. And, um, but it didn't come out to later in life in his thirties. And they got, and my parents got divorced and our house got foreclosed on. My mother went on welfare. And, um, and so, yeah, so it was, my mother was a single mother. My mother worked as a diner waitress. Uh, her shift was um, four o'clock in the afternoon to four o'clock in the morning. So I was primarily raised by my older sister who was nine years older and also uh, a, a substance. She was the one that exposed me to marijuana at, um, at seven years old. And so I won't go into too much detail, but I was human trafficked as well. And, um, and it was a family member, right? So, um, you've been through, you have been through, you have been through the wars. At I, that's what I say. Like I had really, I, you know, I was dealt, I was dealt a raw hand, a, a, a bad deck, of, a, a bad deck of cards. But like I played it, right? And but you know what? I'll tell you this: I wouldn't change one thing about what happened to me, because it dealt me the resilience and it dealt me the character strength to be who I am today. And I feel like everything that I've been through um, helped give me a very rich and colorful history, and helped me be able to um, empathize and to be able to make me a really caring and compassionate per person and to really know because my story is is nothing unique my story is the story of millions of people that are out there and the difference is i have a platform to tell it right. there's millions of people that don't have the platform to tell it yeah and so um, yeah. i feel fortunate i feel fortunate that i'm still alive and i'm still here and I can be an advocate and a voice for millions of people that don't have that, that platform. Clean living. And you know what? I am only here and I am only able to interact with you wonderful people because of recovery. Recovery did it. Recovery works. I'm yeah. living proof of that. That is amazing. If people want to get in touch with you, thank you for sharing your stories. It's, yeah. it's, so, it's so inspiring because... And 
it's really unbelievable. And I don't know. So like after this, I know the recording gets um, uploaded, correct? Yes. We will send it to you. Yeah. And please don't hesitate. Um, Chris, you can do this. Um, please don't hesitate to put both my email and my phone number in the description. And if anybody that listens to this um, needs help themselves, or if um, they know somebody that needs help, please call or email me. Um, I am happy to, 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 to direct you to, you know, a phone number, um, an agency, um, give you resources that can help you. That's what I do. I'm passionate about, passionate about it. And, um, and aware allows us to follow our passions. Yes. Yeah. Great. Willie. Yes. Thank you, you, Dennis. And And I'm connected uh, nationwide. Well, we want to have you back. So yeah, I can get you a resource anywhere. We definitely want to have you back. Um, closing, close. So thank you, um, Willie, Chris. Any closing, closing thoughts? I just want to say, Dennis. Like I didn't really know your whole story, and we've been working together for a little bit now. But um, wow, and thank you, and thank you for sharing your story, and thank you for being willing to share your story with the rest of us, because you know, you know as well as I know that your story is going to empower one person or maybe more people to take that first step to ask for help. So thank you. Thank My you. Pleasure. Thank you for yeah, having me. Thank you very me. much. Willie, what do you, what say you? Yeah, no, thank you very much. I mean, when, when I first heard your name, I was going, Dennis Leary. What, de- we're going to have Dennis me? Leary on today? Res- rescue me? Uh, rescue me? Exactly, <laughs> but Dennis. All the time, I just wish I had his money. I know. With, with right. Dennis Leary, though, Dennis is with one end because he had to be different. Yeah, you know, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. But thank you very, very much for My coming pleasure. on. Very powerful. And uh, thank you. And that's our, our show for the week. And thanks to Mike Weber back at Mission Control. Thanks, Mikey. Mm-hmm. Fox Pro Cable Access Television. And thanks to Willie Drinkwater, Chris Long, Kristen Perry Long. And the aforementioned Dennis Leary, you've been listening to The Map, and we will catch you next week. Have a great week, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.